This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Chris Toomey, filling in as host today for Ben, who's out on vacation, and I'm joined today by Brian Balfour, VP of Growth at HubSpot. How's it going, Brian? Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, So I think we need to start with kind of the base question that probably most people in our audience, and myself included, uh, have on the top of their mind is what exactly is a VP of growth? What does that mean? What is growth kind of per your definition? Uh, and what specifically do you do in your time at HubSpot? Growth in the, in the role of VP of growth is still kind of an, an emerging and evolving thing. So maybe to to help understand, I think actually it helps to understand my background and how I got there. So my background from a kind of a company perspective Uh, I've always been kind of on the entrepreneurial side of things. Started a couple of companies in college. One was a complete failure. One was a minor (laughs) success. But uh, uh, after college, I moved here to Boston and uh, uh, got quickly embedded within the the entrepreneurial scene. And I I started a company, a VC-backed company called Viximo, which was in the social gaming space through that whole boom. That company ended up selling to a mobile ad company called Tapjoy. I then went on to help co-found a business called Boundless, uh, which was a B2C education company. Um, That sold to a textbook rental company named uh, Valor here in Boston. Uh, and then I worked on the venture side a little bit uh, as an EIR, and then eventually HubSpot. Uh, but from can uh, you actually just uh, real quick, what is EIR? Oh, sorry, a uh, entrepreneur in residence. Ah. It's basically uh, typically an interim role at a uh, at venture capital firms, and uh, they take many shapes and sizes. But uh, mm-hmm. it's just a way for an entrepreneur to kind of get a a view from the other other side of the table. Mm-hmm. So, but through that arc, I basically started my career. At, you know, I was a software engineer for a couple of years, taught myself how to code, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> albeit very poorly. <laughs> and uh, uh, then I, and then through Viximo, I uh, led product for a number of years. And then at the end of Viximo, I got really into uh, very quantitative focused uh, customer acquisition as kind of the social gaming ecosystem evolved. And then Boundless was kind of my second company was kind of really the first place where I, I kind of took these three disciplines and started melding them all together. Mm-hmm. Uh and, uh, so when you say these three disciplines, what specifically? Yeah, so basically the technical engineering side okay. with product and more of like the marketing customer acquisition perspective. Mm-hmm. And it never made sense to me uh, that these three things kind of lived in silo mm-hmm. because in reality, and especially from typically your customer's perspective, uh, they're actually all blended together as kind of one one experience. And it just so happens at the same time, uh, this thing called growth emerged. Mm-hmm. And what growth is really about is that basically with with software we we're starting to see all of these lines starting to blur right like where does marketing and product begin mm-hmm. there there really is no clear line anymore right and you know technology and uh, with all of these open platforms from Facebook to Twitter, like these things are embedded solely within their product. And so there's there's not these very clear lines anymore. And so actually the best way to grow software products ends up uh, basically how do you how do you blend these skill sets together? Mm-hmm. And um, 
And marketing didn't really capture a term for that, nor did product, nor did any of these other things. And so what you saw is Facebook was really the first ones to do this is they they formed a growth team. And that was a cross-functional team uh, that blended these three and a fourth discipline, you know, data and data scientists together uh, with just the core purpose of how do I drive growth? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of really where it stemmed from and where it's evolved from today. And I think just a lot of technology companies are finally realizing that the old way that we kind of organize our teams and our companies and the way that we approach marketing and stuff don't make sense anymore in this software world where all of these lines are blurred together right. from marketing to technology to product to data. So, Sure. So that's a, that's a lot of things, I think. Uh, perhaps one thing that kind of stood out to me as I was reviewing some of your writing and your Twitter profile and things like that is uh, it seems like possibly a way to describe this would be things that it's not. And so some of the things that I've seen you say is that it's not PR and it's not branding. So it's not that aspect of marketing. And it's likely not deep technical implementation on the engineering side. But then kind of everything else that spans that middle segment seems like something that you've probably had your hands in at some point and led teams around. Does that seem vaguely accurate? Uh, yeah. So I think PR and branding are actually still really vital pieces to building an amazing company. Mm-hmm. And people tend to like argue one under the spectrum. And I think in the grand scheme of things, it's actually a balance. But I think what you find is that some of those softer marketing skills, the less quantitative and technical mm-hmm. functions of marketing, like PR and like branding, and in some places content, they operate on very different skill sets, DNA, and more importantly, like cycles, right? Uh, your approach to to doing amazing work on those things looks fundamentally different than the quantitative and technical aspects of marketing, which have very much shorter feedback loops, have much more technical nature to them, uh, can be more data-driven, right? Um, same thing on the other end of the spectrum when we talk about product, right? Building really amazing product tends to operate on very different cycles than the types of uh, product that growth teams function, which are very short, very fast iterations, uh, very data-driven, where a lot of times building like a core product, especially a consumer product, uh, a lot of it comes from intuition, gut, they're longer cycles. Uh, And so that's kind of where you distinguish. And, And the lines of where the line is drawn really kind of depends on what type of product you're working on, uh, what type of business model you have, and what type of team and skill sets and culture you currently have. And so that's why you see from Facebook to LinkedIn to whatever company it is that has a growth team, uh, the lines are drawn very differently and the roles look very different as well. So, Sure, that all definitely makes sense. Uh, I think similarly, one of the things that stood out to me about some of your writing and some of my recent uh, work and growth is I had initially thought of it largely on the marketing customer acquisition side. Uh, But I think equally important is the other side of customer retention and figuring out how to get users engaged with your product, get them using it, uh, and get them continuing to use it. So can you talk a little bit about your thoughts regarding kind of that end of the spectrum and how that differs from the traditional marketing acquisition type work? Yeah, so I think my team at HubSpot uh, and what you'll find at most companies that have more developed growth themes is they probably spend equal to more amount of time in the product layers of the funnel than they do at the acquisition layer of the funnel. So when I say the funnel, it's just the, the standard, you know, pirate metrics funnel, the uh, acquisition, activation, retention, referral, revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is, this is you know, one of the big differences between a growth team and a traditional marketing team is that to really grow a product, to grow a software product, you can influence any one of those layers to cause growth, right? I can increase retention and my growth will go up. 
I can increase my activation and my onboarding and growth will go up. I can increase my referral rate, growth will go up, right? And whereas, you know, a lot of more traditional marketing teams tend to just focus just on the at that acquisition layer, right? And so uh, growth teams tend to take a much more holistic kind of view of the product and try to focus on whatever the most impactful uh, kind of layer of the funnel is at, at any given time. And so, yeah, so you'll find most, a lot of growth teams very commonly doing not just a lot in retention, actually a lot in kind of activation and onboarding in that piece of the product that tends to be a huge lever in a lot of products that is underinvested in, as well as kind of playing in the acquisition layers. Because if you look at most acquisition channels like paid acquisition, like Facebook ads, uh, things like that, even like long tail SEO, these things are becoming very technical to kind of iterate on if you want to be at, you know, the top notch, you know, competitors. Uh, a lot of people are building their own custom software to to drive paid acquisition, drive SEO, drive these types of channels. And so, uh, once again, another reason why you need to have these skill sets blended together rather than kind of working off in silos from each other. Yeah, definitely makes sense. And they're becoming kind of more saturated as each new one appears. A group of people are going to kind of lead the way out, figure out how to work that system as well as possible. And suddenly it's much more costly, much more competitive within each of those different landscapes. So it's a constantly evolving world that you're working within. Uh, I think actually that's uh, one of the other things that stands out to me in your writing is uh, you talk a lot about strategic iterative processes. Uh, you're not so much thinking about here's the one quick trick to get you 10,000 new users. It's much more about the continued investment, the thinking, the measuring, and then kind of just looping that all back. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about your thinking, kind of the contrast of those different viewpoints and how you uh, view the work that you do? Well, I think a lot of people almost kind of mystified growth in marketing for a long time. And, you know, a lot of this kind of this mystery came from whether it's the press or others kind of basically publishing, you know, these these one little things that cause like these huge growth curves. It's like just making it look much more glamorous than it actually is. And uh, when you kind of scratch beneath the surface, you find that the best teams actually have systematic ways to consistently come up with very kind of educated, informed ideas. They're prioritizing very effectively. Uh, out of those priorities, they're figuring out how to test these things as efficiently as possible. And then they're learning as much as they can from these tests to kind of feed back into, you know, their ideas and, and their prioritization. And so a lot of teams approach growth from one of the biggest mistakes is approaching growth is like, I just need to come up with like this one, this one thing, and it's going to solve all of my problems. But right? there might be any singular idea that could do it because yeah. any given idea will actually decay over time. And, you know, if Facebook ads suddenly win for a while, that market might suddenly yeah. become very competitive and that changes. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, there's a lot of reasons why you need this system. The one you just mentioned is that these things change all of the time. And mm -hmm. so what worked six months ago is probably not working today. And same thing, what's working today is not going to work in six months from now. And and so if you don't have this system of consistently coming up with these things, right, like it's just not, you're going to lose in the end. And a lot of people point to examples, like everybody loves the examples like Airbnb's, you know, Craigslist hack. But now, you know, with were a few years past that you look at where the majority of Airbnb's growth came from. It did not come from that mm -hmm. thing. It came from, you know, just relentless 
iteration on SEO and, you know, their viral and word of mouth loops, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and even now, they've I've seen a lot of them running ads and like paid acquisition. And so once again, an example of people kind of making it look more glamorous than it actually is. And uh, deep down beneath, like growth is actually very, you have to be very kind of resilient at it. You tend to have a lot more failures than you do successes. You got to kind of, you have to trust the system. You have to keep plugging away and to kind of find those, find those successes and kind of survive that competitive and constantly moving landscape. Right. So, uh, uh, yeah. So once again, it's the first thing that my team learns when they walk in the door is that we have a system and this is the system and there's a lot of room to operate within this system. Uh, but the system is what is eventually what leads to results. Absolutely. So you have a, a post to actually be the best at getting better. And I think if nothing else, just as kind of a soundbite, that title is so, uh, I think, really, really great at capturing the idea of it's not about any singular idea. It's all about the process. It's about figuring out how to find that next thing that will lead to some form of growth or retention or what have you. But within that, I can imagine that some people would look at this and say, okay, well, actually, it's 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 really systematic. Well, I'm more of a creative person, uh, so this is probably not for me. But again, based on some of the things that you've said, uh, particularly you highlighted in uh, a, another podcast, the idea of it starts with quantitative, moves on to qualitative, and then goes to sort of an intuition place as to how to figure out the implementation of what came out of that. So can you talk a little bit more about the specifics of the process and those three elements and how kind of they each play together? Yeah, so the, the argument or the, the debate tends to stem from is growth a kind of an art or a science, right? Is it uh, a purely, classic dichotomy? Yeah, right. And with most things, it's a false dichotomy, yep. right? And the brilliance, the brilliant teams come from how do you blend these these skill sets and these things together? And and so what I typically say is that real growth insights tend to come from combining basically the quantitative portion with the qualitative portion and your own insight. And there's this like, you know, this Venn diagram and they kind of like these three circles uh, overlap. And the reason is, is that they all serve their own purpose, right? Quantitative data tends to be very good at telling us, you know, what's going on. Qualitative data tends to tell it, indicate like why it's happening. And, but at the end of the day, you know, your users never fully tell you what the solution should be. They just help kind of describe the problem. And so you have to use your own intuition, your own creativity to really come up with the full answer. And and there's just time and time again where where we've seen this among our team where we're blending these three things together is is truly what's been uh, is kind of what's led to the success. So once again, it's not either or. It's like finding that system that kind of blends these things together, uses them for their biggest strengths, right? And complement you know the complementing the parts. I think for me, uh, as I've been moving into this space from a pretty traditional developer role here at ThoughtBot, that has been both kind of a surprise and a, a welcome surprise in that uh, there's a lot of almost scientific aspect to it where it's design an experiment, uh, put something out there, test it out, uh, and then take those results, roll them back in. But at some point it gets to, well, okay, users can't figure out how to use this particular page. What exactly do we do with that? And then that essentially from that, uh, come up with some interesting novel way to alter the system and then put that back in at the top and start up another experiment and see if that improves retention or activation or whichever metric it is that you're trying to move. And uh, I've definitely found that to be more enjoyable than I expected. <laughs> yeah. I I think so. I think a lot of, I've heard a lot of engineers or people with engineering backgrounds 
kind of approach it with like heavy skepticism of, you know, I'm not going to like working on this growth thing. But then they find that there's actually, you know, this really interesting blend of of science and creativity, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think a lot of engineers and, you know, people with technical backgrounds enjoy. And and so now I've, I've talked to a lot of people either on like the Uber growth teams or the Facebook growth teams and like, I'll, I'll never go back. I love it. And, but, it, but it does appeal to diff, slightly different people, right? Uh, the people who do really well on growth teams are the ones that uh, love tying their work to impact. The impact is the most important piece, right? Uh, that's what they're driven by. They're not necessarily driven by, you know, building this super complex system or, you know, from a designer's perspective, you know, this pixel-perfect design, right? It's, it's did their work have sort of an impact on the numbers, the growth, uh, sort of the business? The the one, and, and those people come in many shapes and sizes with many different backgrounds, but those are the one, those are the people, the people with that type of motivation and that type of DNA tend to be the ones that fit the best on growth teams. Yeah, that definitely uh, makes sense and kind of matches to my experience uh, but additionally, I'll say overall, the thing that I always enjoyed about development was just making. I was making something, mm-hmm. and I kind mm-hmm. of had viewed marketing and things like that as, well, I don't know what's what's being made there. But when <laughs> I started to view it as, well, I'm making a product, I'm building this system that is a product, that became kind of a framework for me to view it and compare it to my previous work and find that same sort of enjoyment within it. Uh, so I've definitely enjoyed the work. Uh, the one thing I'll say, and this is especially true of me on a smaller, at this point, one to two person team, uh, is there's a lot of different aspects to this. Uh, I think earlier we talked about what growth means to you, and it, it spans a pretty wide segment of the different roles and the different uh, approaches and work that someone might be doing. And personally, right, uh, of late, I've actually been struggling a lot with where do I focus? Mm. And am I trying systematically to be working on all aspects of the funnel at the same time? Or should I be narrowing in and finding one? I'm leaning towards that as an approach. That seems like it's it's probably like focus in, find the leakiest portion of the funnel, spend some time there, uh, perform a few experiments, iterate, hopefully improve that, and then move on to the next piece. But I'm wondering, what does your personal and your team's workflows look like? Are you focusing on an individual aspect or are you simultaneously working on multiple pieces? And It's a good question. I mean, because this stuff definitely evolves over time and what it looks like in the earlier stages actually looks pretty different than the later stages. And so the earlier stages that you're talking about, assuming that there's product market fit, which from a quantitative perspective means uh, you've got decent retention, Right. Mm-hmm. So that's first thing first. Right. Like that is the first place that you look no matter what is like, do I have decent retention or not? And if you don't have good retention, then that is where you focus. That That is the answer there. But let's say you, you do have decent retention. And I have a post on, on my blog at on Coelevate that that talks about what decent retention looks like. You know, then the question becomes, well, we have a really small team. We can't really do all of these different things. And so it's getting really, really good at answering the question, what is the most impactful thing I can work on right now given my limited set of, of resources, which could be time, could be money, could be people, could be a number of things. And that's where like some of these skill sets come in around like how do you model your product's growth? Because that model, you know, which by model, I'm basically meaning just a fancy Excel spreadsheet, will help you. It's a tool that can help you determine, you know, what is the most impactful thing that I can work on right now that might affect my growth over the next six months, year, two years, right? But getting really good at answering that question. So in the earliest stages, 
you tend to find teams that will focus on different parts of the funnel at different times depending on the answer to that question. And so you, you start to jump or you, you jump around a little bit. But while staying focused on a single layer of the funnel for, right. say, a week or two or even a month or uh, something. Even longer, yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes even longer. It, kind of, it really depends on, on what you're doing, the stage of the funnel. Uh, just a general rule of thumb is the deeper you go in the funnel, the longer the experiment cycles are mm-hmm. because the less amount of users you have at that stage in the funnel, it's, experiments are, tend to be a little bit more complicated to instrument, right? Uh, and so that kind of determines the timeline, but it... Uh, I'll give you an example. So one of the products we've worked on at HubSpot is uh, is a tool called Sidekick. And uh, when we first started, the first thing that we worked on was act- was activation, right? You know, we had an abysmal active. For every sign-up, we were only activating like 25% of users. An activation in this case, it's a Chrome plugin. Is that correct? Yeah. So Sidekick, it uh, plugs into your email and, and kind of gives you all of, we like to call them superpowers on top of your email. And so an activation for us was getting that uh, installed in your email could have been through a Chrome browser uh, extension or like an Outlook plugin, mm-hmm. as well as taking, you know, your very first action, right? And so you know, when, when we modeled out the growth, it kind of didn't matter how much we increased our acquisition or retention or whatever. If we just kept activation rate at that low number, it was going to be almost impossible to like really grow this thing economically. And so we worked on that first. Oh, we increased the top of the funnel acquisition. That was our biggest thing. And then as we did that, uh, retention kind of became the most impactful thing we work on. So we jumped uh, onto that. And so you jump around and then when you really get farther down the stage, what you end up having is, well, the team grows and grows and grows these things. Your user base grows. You're going to start wanting to segment these experience to be a little bit more granular. And so you start to spin off teams that own these pieces full time, right? And and so if you played it all the way out, uh, you know, to like a Pinterest or one of these really late stage companies, what you'll find is, got a small product team that owns like onboarding or activation you'll have a small product team that might own things like referral or pricing optimization right and so you have these segments where you have actually full-time teams focused on it but there's it's obviously a it's a it's a progression to there right mm-hmm. it's you don't you don't start there so i find that idea of having teams dedicated to different layers uh, very interesting my initial takeaway or my my initial concern would be that that would uh, burn people out pretty quickly in the sense of you're probably working at the far end of the diminishing returns curve at that point you know if you're on pinterest and they're trying to increase onboarding they're trying to do that by i don't know a tenth of a percent something like that and i guess if that's the measure you're going for and you can uh, really engage yourself in that, then that that can be meaningful. But personally, I'm loving being sort of early on in a product right now and having lots of areas where I can find nice places to increase by you know 50% or 100% or things like that. And I wonder how how the larger team deeper into the life cycle of the product affects the work that individuals are doing and how they're engaged with that work. Yeah, I, I mean, yes and no. I think you know you look at something like Pinterest and they could still get huge gains. It's uh, just by, you know, for example, they were really good with the female audience for a really long time. And that's because their product and their onboarding experience was very well designed for their females, mm-hmm. but they had all these males signing up, right? And so there was like huge gains to be made there. And actually, if you sign up as a male now, it looks totally different than if you sign up as a female. Mm-hmm. And now it's now I think, you know, they're probably thinking about all sorts of international expansion, right? And so there's massive improvements to be made there just by like looking at the user base on different international levels. So when you get to that size, there's there are still 
pretty big gains to be made. And and also, you know, a, a percentage improvement at those numbers is actually has a massive impact, yeah. right? Which is the, which is the other piece of it. But you do you still need to be resilient, mm-hmm. uh, number one, and and you do need to be conscious of when you kind of start to hit those diminishing returns because then you've got to you've kind of got to mix it up and mm-hmm. uh, you've got to go back to st- taking really really big swings and big swings might mean new products like massive new features one way to think about it is um i can't remember where i got this analogy from so i I apologize for not i did not come up with this somebody else did but it's very much viewing it as like building a car like there's these cycles you know with car makers at every like five or six years or whatever they totally redesign the car chassis right and then for the next four or five years they kind of iterate on mm-hmm. top of that with new models but at some point you get to this diminishing returns you learn so much from all of these iterations and improvements that you're like well to hit the next level i kind of have to redo the chassis again right and then you kind of go through these cycles and i, I kind of very much view it like that it's sure. kind of very very similar yeah, and I guess the other aspect of that is at a larger company, you're able to run tests at a much uh, faster rate. You're just seeing so many people going through the products, and I, I think Amazon is able to run a test once a minute or something to that effect with high, high statistical significance. That's and, right. Uh, and as a result, they have a very optimized page for a, a certain <laughs> set of use cases. Um, so I'd love to uh, transition the conversation a little bit here to another of the articles you've written, uh, and this is How to Become a Customer Acquisition Expert. This particular piece that you wrote really grabbed my attention uh, for a few reasons. First, I think it's uh, an incredibly good introduction to the topic. Uh, I think you provide a lot of great material, but also there's a kind of higher level framework that you have for learning about customer acquisition. But the thing that was really interesting to me is it kind of paralleled my experience becoming a developer, but also I think more generally just learning anything. So I think first, kudos to you on that. But I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of the elements uh, in this. So particularly, there's no unicorn uh, course. There's no singular source that you're going to get everything from. And knowing that this is going to be, and again, this comes to kind of the continual effort over time idea. uh, I love that that's the thing that you lead out with. Uh, Because I found that to be true with just about every aspect of my life and work. Nothing is easy. Nothing worth doing is easy. Um, so I love that you you lead out with that. But can you talk a little bit more about kind of the the framework that you identify here and then also the uh, kind of T structure that you describe for the breadth and depth of the different topics? Yeah, so this is a very timely question because uh, I'm, you know, that post is a few years old and I'm kind of in the process of doing a massive rewrite uh, of it. And because I think I've evolved my thinking. And so I think, Interesting. so I'll, I'll tell you kind of where my thinking was and in, in starting to where my thinking is starting to go. And I, I actually don't, I don't have it fully formed yet. So awesome. uh, <laughs> well, let's, let's workshop this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think the framework that I lay out in this post is it's this T structure, right? Uh, it, this is common. This is referred in a number of other places, which is you have kind of these base layer of skill sets horizontally across the top of the T. And then um, what you should really aim to do is go uh, deep on one or two, right? And so in the growth space, for example, there are a set of things that kind of anybody in growth kind of needs to know. And that might be things like some basic data analysis, right? Uh, How to look at quantitative and qualitative data and analyze it. Uh, things like copywriting, uh, another kind of very kind of base layer skill set, right? Um, and then eventually you get to all of these very channel specific things like paid acquisition or Facebook ads or virality or even things like retention, right? And it's really good to go really deep and kind of become a quote unquote expert in one of these 
spaces because it's it's how you kind of stand out and add an inordinate amount of value, right, compared to everybody else who kind of just had knows the base has a collection of the basics of everything, right? And so, and so that's kind of where it comes out at. Uh, some of my evolved thinking is that you know part of me still likes the T structure, and I actually think there's even a even a more fundamental base layer than the ones that I, I described, which is learning how to learn, hmm. right? And uh, Yeah, again, that's kind of the thing that stood out to me across a lot of the different things that you've written is that idea of iteration and process and continuous improvement both in yourself and in the work that you're doing. Uh, so I like that that's, you're now imagining that as kind of the um, meta base layer. That's right. And I think it's becoming more and more important because the knowledge in uh, the spaces that we work in is just changing at a faster and faster pace. And so I think just that ends up being a fundamental skill set. And so where I start to get into conflicts uh, or where I'm kind of conflicted right now is that I think one of the best ways to learn how to learn is to actually go really deep on something. I actually don't really think you learn how to learn when you just scratch the surface on a bunch of different things uh, because you tend not to face the hardest problems and the hardest problems are the ones where you really learn how to learn, right? So in that perspective, I still like kind of the T structure, the T analogy. Where I don't like it is that uh, what I've learned over the past year or two is that some of the most talented people I uh, have worked with do have just like a collection of those experiences. And they and the reason they are super awesome to work with is because they bring a different perspective that nobody else kind of brings. And they've spent years on not going deep on any one thing, but collecting a bunch of experiences. And also those people tend to feel suffocated by the need to go super, super deep on something. So I'm a little conflicted with how to resolve that. Mm-hmm. And and I don't really have the full I don't really have the full answer just yet. But um I, I think still in like the majority of the cases most people can really benefit from one, just learning how to learn and and problem solve. Uh two, making sure that they cover these like foundational layers to whatever discipline that they're in because these foundational layers will enable you to very quickly pick up a bunch of different T parts of the structure. But two, but three, definitely go deep on something because it help reinforces those base layers and how to learn and you in the process end up making yourself much more valuable to a company or to your project. Sure. So. I think, uh, you know, again, you, you've highlighted in this some of the different uh, areas that you should uh, have that foundation in. And I think that's so useful to someone coming into uh, this sort of work. Or similarly, there's the same sort of thing on the web development side. There's a base set of things that you should know about. And then certainly there are some that you should go a little bit deeper on, and that can vary based on your interest. Um, but I think this structure is is extremely useful, and particularly the examples you give, uh, but also just this kind of systematic thinking. And again, one of the kind of pieces of the framework that you apply before providing the particular implementation is the idea that you do have to do this. You can't just read. Yeah. You can't just uh, you know browse through Hacker News or any other source like that and expect that you'll come away able to do this work. You're going to have to get in there. And so what's interesting to me is to hear the way you're describing this and kind of the conflict between the depth and the breadth and things like that, uh, but also describing those individuals who have now done this a number of times, who've gone through this iteration. Uh, and what it sounds like to me is you're just a little bit further in your path. And so for someone getting started, I think this is still such a great model. 
but now for you, at least it sounds like you're holding yourself accountable to, I should probably be a little deeper on a few of these topics. Uh, and I definitely see that in myself as well. But I think yeah. it's important for those that are beginning. It's like, this will be a process and there's no way yeah. to get to five years of experience in year one. I, I think that taking action is is a huge point, especially with, uh, we have a lot of these online learning sites coming on board and, and I still see the majority of them kind of orient around just, you know, watching, watching a bunch of videos mm-hmm. and maybe answering some questions. And I think we're very much How topical. (laughs) Taking action on this knowledge is a really important part. The number of times I just get people who apply to jobs and say, well, I know how to do Facebook ads because I watched this video on Mm -hmm. so-and-so site on how to do Facebook ads. And I'm just like, that's just, it's just not true. I think you're, I think you're kidding yourself a little Mm -hmm. bit. You don't really know Facebook ads until you probably spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, (laughs) and hopefully not your money. No more direct route. Yeah. 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 Hopefully not your money. Right. right? And, um, I guess that's actually kind of an interesting distinction, I think, between the world of development and the world of growth. Uh, I see there being the vast majority of things in the world of web development, I think are accessible to a beginner in the sense that they can, define a project that is not some tutorial that they're running through, but is, you know what, I want a site to track X. I want my friends to be able to log their workouts and we'll meet at a place and, you know, geo-tracking and whatever features they want to do, but they can build something that's real. It's certainly one of scale, and so they can't necessarily get to that level, but they can experience, I think, a much wider cross-section of this than might be available in the growth world, because a lot of growth is take a look at a large volume of individuals and how they interact with your system, with your product, and analyze that and experiment with that. And it feels like growth is actually a little bit hard to break into in that sense because you do need that volume, you do need that audience, and you need a a place to kind of experiment with that. Like you said, you know Facebook ads when you've dumped $100,000 into it or or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you see there being any more uh, direct or shortcuts or kind of ways that individuals can get themselves closer to that without necessarily being part of a larger company? It's certainly harder, but not impossible. There's certain disciplines within the growth space that are very easy for you to act on yourself, whether that's things like content marketing and SEO. Those are things that you can spin up a site and play around with and build in a little bit and learn a little bit yourself. Or you can just offer you know, some of your time for free to people who might have that data, right? And so th- there's ways to it. But so I think it is certainly harder, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's an impossible. But I, you know, a lot of people ask, you know, if I want to like become really good at growth, where what should I do? And my, my first suggestion is, is just, you know, look at some of the medium, larger size growth teams and just get your foot in the door, mm-hmm. right? A lot of, you know, in a lot of other cases, I've recommended get yourself into smaller environments where you're going to be exposed a lot more, but some of the larger teams, you're just going to be exposed to a lot more sophistication, a lot more data. You'll be able to play around with a lot more users, a lot more, ex- you see a lot more experiments, right? You, you'll be able to get that information and that breadth much quicker than some of the earlier stage kind of companies and products. Sure, absolutely. I guess that actually brings me to uh, another question I have for you, which is, uh, as far as I can tell, a lot of your work has been in larger venture-funded startups that are really going for that aggressive growth curve early on, as early as they can get it. Whereas at this point, my experience is in a product that has kind of evolved very organically over a number of years from within this larger consulting organization of ThoughtBot. 
And a lot of my particular interest has been in more the bootstrapped, smaller startup space. So I'm wondering, how do you view growth within, uh, I guess, the comparison between those two different types of companies? Do you think it's equally valid in the bootstrap case, or is it going to only really come into play when you're much longer into the lifespan of that product? So I think there's actually a lot more similarities than there are differences between the two. Um, obviously, the the speed and the aggressiveness is certainly probably slower on the bootstrap side. Yeah, my tests take a while to season. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, the deeper think, the funnel, especially the more so. Yeah. Yeah. One of the key like governors or like throttles on growth is uh, your payback period. The amount of time it takes you to recover your cost of customer acquisition. And the reason that ends up being a governor is because, you know, if you have really long payback periods, you have to have a lot more cash on hand to keep fueling the growth, right? And so typically in the venture back startups, I li- or like what I like to call the one or zero plays, right? You, it's either you go big or more often than not, it's nothing at all, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you find companies being willing to take on more and more risk, meaning much longer and longer payback periods uh, to kind of fuel their growth. I think I saw the number uh, 100% cost of acquisition somewhere in your writing. So the idea that whatever the lifetime value of a customer is, if you're early enough in the product growth on kind of the venture side, you might be willing to spend 100% of that to just be building up that that customer yeah, base. Yeah, I mean, you certainly like, you know, when you look at a case like Uber, which has a lot of things around network effect and density and, yep. and to really kind of fuel that growth, you, you know, you just view those problems a little bit differently and are willing to take on a little bit uh, more risk. I mean, one of the other big things is, so probably one of the biggest differences actually is that also, this is also another essay that isn't fully formed yet on my site, but, uh, what you find with, you know, the venture, the, the high, high growth is what I would call in the very earliest stages, everybody talks about product market fit. I think there's this thing called product channel fit, which is that, uh, your product in like your, your economics of the business uniquely fit one of the very few high growth and scalable channels, right? So out there, there's probably only about five, maybe six super high ceiling scalable ways to grow like a $100 million revenue business. There's certainly like virality and word of mouth on the consumer side. There's paid advertising, everything from Facebook ads to running ads on TV. There's kind of content marketing, what you've seen HubSpot do. There's some type of sales model, whether it's inside sales or outside sales, uh, to even like large scale SEO, something like a TripAdvisor or a Yelp, right? Uh, and if you look at the most, like the billion dollar companies, they tend to grow off of probably one channel, maybe two, right? Peter Thiel calls this the power law of distribution. And the reason is, is because they have this thing almost from the very beginning of product channel fit is that is that the, the channel is almost actually melded perfectly within the product, right? TripAdvisor is perfectly built to take advantage of massive amounts of long tail SEO, right? Same with Airbnb as an example. Uber is perfectly built for word of mouth and virality, right? I take rides with friends, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so on the venture back, the super high scale, fast growth, this is what you typically find. On the bootstrapping end of the equation, or what I would say not the high growth is that the product or the economics of the business don't necessarily meld or support perfectly, you know, to one of these massively high scalable channels. And so you might end up piecing together three, four, five different channels 
at once, um, but it ends up being slower growth because you're, you're getting smaller amounts of growth from each one of those channels. It actually has larger overhead costs. It just it takes a lot slower to grow. But you know if but you look at most of the billion dollar companies and you can see that most of their growth comes from like 80% of a single channel because they have this thing called product channel fit right and i'm still figuring out how to perfectly describe it but yeah. uh this is a great start i'll uh, say uh, but, but those those are two of the biggest differences i would say if you don't have that product channel fit or a really firm hypothesis around it don't raise venture capital mm-hmm. it's just uh, hmm. i like that as a uh, as a kind of heuristic around whether or not to to raise funding yeah but i guess uh on the other end of that so you're highlighting that as one of the main distinguishing elements between them. But beyond that, a lot of the tactics, a lot of the thinking, the kind of process-driven focus, it sounds like you would say that most of that would be the same and apply similarly, at least, to the The system is the same. Yeah. The the system is, and the process is absolutely the same. The the tactics uh, that live within that system will tend to end up being a little bit different or uh, the aggressiveness uh, or the risk taking end up to be different, but the system in terms of how to come up with growth ideas, how to prioritize them, how to learn from them, it's all exactly the same. Absolutely. Well, that all makes sense to me. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. Is there anything else that uh, we should have talked about that I didn't ask or anything else that you want to highlight that's going on in your world right now? There's a lot going on in my world. I got a couple big announcements coming out soon. I can't talk about them just yet, but... Uh, uh, teasing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my site, uh, uh, coelevate.com, where a lot of uh, my writings are, just please, uh, if you're interested, just go and uh, you can uh, sign up to my emailing list. Uh, I know this is a developer audience. You'd be glad to know I only email about once, maybe twice a month. So. An important <laughs> caveat. But uh, yeah, the, the quality of the writing is uh, is very high. A number of the pieces just kind of stood out to me as uh, really solidly written. And I think it's, it's interesting to see a site like yours that is not so much a blog or doesn't feel so much like I'm producing just regular content, but instead very considered, purposeful pieces that stand the test of time a little bit more. So I appreciate the, I assume, attention to detail and effort that went into each of those pieces. Uh, thanks. Yeah, I'm much more intelligent in writing than I am uh, speaking. So <laughs> go. So if you think I'm dumb from this podcast, please go read my blog. <laughs> well, <laughs> or if you think he's smart from this podcast, just think no, that the writing That's must right, be. The more optimistic. For you. There we yeah. go. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can find them at giantrobots.fm slash 181. Thanks to Brian Belfour for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.